You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Monster House presents Monster Talk is proud to be a part of the Airwave Media family, home of such shows as The Daily Meditation Podcast, The Accidental Creative, and I Know What Scares You. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Many years ago now, I, I, you can tell me how many. Yeah. The movie The Exorcist uh, came out. Yeah. It was the first of its kind, really, uh, major movies, and uh, it scared it scared uh, it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> be honest with you. Um, and as no movie, even with all their horrible little monsters, ever has since. And I, I'm not Isn't sure why. Funny? Isn't that funny? Isn't that interesting? That's, I find that very curious. I really do. Uh, even more than any of the Dracula and the Frankenstein films. Even more than the, 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 the movies with uh, Alien, where monsters are popping out of people's bellies and all sorts of horrible yes. things. Uh, yes. And I think the reason is because I viewed The Exorcist as real. Yes, I think so. And it did touch on a chord, uh, the existence of a demon. Uh, which could, on occasion, inhabit the body of some other human, of some human being. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the Highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. In part one of this interview, we talked about how the movie The Exorcist impacted pop culture and drove an uptick in movies about demonic possession and also changed the way people performed actual exorcism. In part two, we'll be looking at how that in turn led to the rise of prominent participants in paranormal praxis to incorporate and elaborate on the ideas created in film and fiction. Characters such as Ed and Lorraine Warren and Father Malachi Martin used their creativity and a generous dose of duplicity to create narratives that put them at the heart of a spiritual war, but not one based in reality. 
so much as when riffing on hit movies and self-serving imaginative scenarios that often rooted them in narratives of family struggle that were based in real-world tragedy. This theme of fact-fiction interplay continues in Part 2 as we discuss these characters and the dark, satanic panic that gripped the late 1970s and 1980s, and which, I would argue, continues today to our continued peril. Now, we continue with Part 2 of our interview about The Exorcist Effect with Joe Laycock and Eric Harrelson. Monster Talk. All right, so now we're back with Joe Laycock and Eric Harrelson. Thanks for coming back for a continuation of this discussion about your new book, The Exorcist Effect. Now, you've got a lot of content in here that surprised me, even though I already knew about a lot of these characters. Can we talk a little bit about the Warrens? Yeah, yeah. Where do we begin? Where yeah, we no begin? kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe what how did start? they get? How did they begin? Well, you know, after The Exorcist came out, everybody wanted an exorcism, and generally the Catholic Church was turning them away. And there's lots of reasons for that. One of which was there were no trained exorcists. Uh, hardly anyone in the United States in 1973 was trained to perform an exorcism, and uh, you know the church's stance in the United States traditionally has been. Uh, this is a big embarrassment for the church, so we don't want to do it unless absolutely necessary, and you need the approval of a, of a bishop. So even if you find a priest who wants to give you an exorcism, they usually can't do it unless their bishop is, is, is friendly to the idea. So this created a big demand for exorcisms and no supply. So into this stepped uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were uh, lay Catholics, um, but they could, uh, if, if you needed an exorcism or you thought you had a demon or something like that, um, they would first um, kind of diagnose you. So Lorraine said that she was a clairvoyant and could figure out if there were, you know, uh, demons around using her psychic abilities. And then Ed, who said he was a demonologist, would usually tell you why he thought you had a demon because you had a Ouija board or, or something like this. And then they could get you an exorcism usually through some kind of backdoor channel. So that might be... Um, with one of the many um, uh, splinter groups that broke away uh, from the Catholic Church after there were Catholic reforms in, in the 1960s, or they might get kind of a rogue priest from another a diocese who was willing to do something uh, without his bishop's uh, a permission. Um, and the Warrens had been active as kind of ghostbusters prior to the exorcist, but when the exorcist came out, that really permanently changed their their brand and Henceforward, they were known as kind of Catholic demon busters. Well, one thing I really enjoyed about the book is the way that you conduct interviews and you talk to a lot of people who are involved with various cases. One of those people that you spoke with was my husband, Matt Baxter. And mm -hmm. I think it's just really interesting because I've heard lots of stories he's told me over the years about meeting uh, Ed Warren and talking to him and doing a an investigation with him and just his general impressions about the real Warrens, what they were like behind the scenes. And to me, what was really interesting is that a lot of what he said to me is borne out and supported by other researchers and writers and investigators. For example, Ray Garten, we have had him uh, on Monster Talk before to talk about this topic, but uh, it was just really interesting to see that uh, there, there are other people who've had similar experiences to, to Matt with the Warrens. Yeah, Ray Garden and Matt Baxter both said almost the exact same thing, which was they, they went to Ed Warren and said, none of this adds up. This is not a real investigation or the things that you're saying are not consistent or they don't match up the, the other people. 
And they both said, Ed Warren took them aside and said, listen, everyone here is crazy. They wouldn't call us if they weren't crazy. Uh, just shut up and play along and we'll we'll make our money or we'll get our show recorded or or whatever. So that was very striking to hear uh, yeah. that same account from two different people. Mm-hmm. Almost well, verbatim. Then, oh, yeah, exactly. And and especially because of the, the Warrens and their sort of very carefully curated image that they project. Mm-hmm. They, they project this kind of um, uh, almost familial, uh, familiar type of, you know, your, your, your favorite uncle and your, your nice wholesome. Yeah. Yes. Wholesome. <laughs> exactly. And they project this image and they sort of, you know, this loving couple that is, you know, selflessly helping those who are besieged by the forces of darkness, you know, and it's interesting to see that, you know, the further we sort of dug into uh, the Warrens and, spoke with people who had interacted with them and read different, you know, different interviews, different cases, that veneer starts to, you know, crack a touch. Yeah. I mean, by the time the the, the Conjuring series had come out, you know, I, I was already familiar with sort of this, this, uh, this dark streak of their actual biography that was largely I, hidden from the public. And in the it made the movies feel like hagiography instead of just pure film. Like I like mm-hmm. them as technical horror films, but they've got this like sanctification of the Warrens sort of baked into the narrative that's I feel not only unwarranted, but like <laughs> the counter to the actuality in such a way that it's offensive. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we know that this was part of Lorraine Warren's contract with the studios was that you can't ever show Ed Warren um, doing anything bad or or show him being a, a bad husband uh, or, or a bad Catholic. So they really couldn't do that. Um, and, and there was, of course, um, you know, all kinds of scandal that came out once The Conjuring, once it was clear The Conjuring was going to be a billion dollar franchise uh, and various people began, you know, claiming that they were cut out and sort of airing out all the Warrens uh, a dirty laundry. Uh, and in the midst of all of this, one lawyer just said, "Well, you know, look, you can't, uh, you can't make a good movie if your protagonists are a bunch of a holes." Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, <laughs> not a good story. Sums them up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> unless that's the, the the focus and not all the cool supernatural stuff, right? So, but you and you can. You can kind of see, too, in the characterization of the Warrens, the sort of already implanting the idea of a franchise, right? Yes. They're already saying, these are your characters. This is the important part. These are who we're – these are the people we're going to follow through these trials, uh, their long career of fighting the – you know, fighting evil. So, of course, they want to, you know – protect them and, as you said, bake in this kind of very uh, wholesome and, and uh, Warren-centric uh, uh, narrative to these to these uh, cases. It it bugs me because, like, they've, they've become way bigger than, like, like now because of these films, they, they have this giant footprint in the paranormal. And I don't know how important they were, like, in reality. But, like... Well, like it, to me, like for example, their relationship to Amityville always felt like the Amityville hoax happened, and then they kind of jumped onto the bandwagon and tried to like glue their name with oh. the Amityville name, and it, it didn't seem like the Enfield poltergeist as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, Enfield. They, they, uh, the, the, the family in in the Enfield poltergeist. 
the the family said that they didn't even remember Ed and Lorraine Warren. They showed up uninvited <laughs> and hung around for a few hours and then basically got booted. You know, they're they it, it, you know, it's 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 interesting to kind of uh, like you said, they they have this big footprint now. And that sort of illustrates a lot of the point we make in our book is that the reality and I use that word sparingly loosely when you discuss a uh when you discuss the supernatural but even the sort of uh, uh accepted events are now changed to include the warrens far more um you know far more uh prominently than they were actually included in in the events as they occurred mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I still think there's significance. I mean, if nothing else, they popularize the idea that you can be a famous demonologist too. You know, you can be a you can be a professional uh, a ghost hunter. I occasionally get uh, random emails on LinkedIn or something saying, "Hey, you know, I'm a demon buster, and I see you teach a class at Texas State. Do you want to team up? Do you want to do I get some 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 <laughs> some cases with me?" Uh, and then also kind of the mythology. So when Lorraine says things like. Um, you know, the, your house has a spirit who never walked the earth in human form. Um, you know, they, they made this kind of mythology through which I think people came to interpret uh, their their experiences. So even though I, I agree, um, a lot of the cases were already famous before the Warrens kind of tried to attach themselves to it. I do think that they kind of, by getting a platform by hook or by crook, they they did kind of uh, a change contemporary uh, mythology and ideas around things like ghosts and demons. Oh, absolutely. You know, we talk uh, a lot about how the Warrens uh, had a lecture circuit. You know, they they never and, and this is this is real. They never charged for their their demon hunting services. They never charged the families for that. But that said, they did, you know, work really hard to spin those those into opportunities such as books, movies, but the lecture circuit is is how they made uh, you know how they made a lot of their a lot of their um their impact and also sort of continue to perpetuate their ideas people would go and see them at these lectures and then approach them after and say hey you know i'm experiencing stuff that you're describing and can you help me so i'm going to bring up a topic that's very unsavory, very unpleasant, uh, and it's <laughs> a lot more people are talking about this aspect of the Warrens and their relationship uh, nowadays. We didn't know about this earlier on, but um, it seems like their relationship, again, they, it was it's portrayed in the movies as being wholesome and very loving, uh, but the reality was, was far from that. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about a character or a real life person um, who has come forward with allegations about the Warrens and has revealed a lot more about the the truth behind their personas. Yeah, so in the, yeah, in, in the fighting uh, that came out after The Conjuring became so, so lucrative, um, there was an affidavit from someone named Judith Penny, and the story that, that she told in her affidavit was that uh, she met Ed Warren when she was in uh, school, and Ed Warren was about you know, 30 or something years older than her, and was the bus driver. Uh, and they formed a relationship, and that she ended up living with, with the Warrens, having a romantic relationship with Ed for something like 40 years. And she even said at one point that uh, when she became pregnant, 
she was pressured into um, into getting an abortion uh, and was was told, you know, say say uh, a stranger snuck into the house and, and raped you if anybody asks. And this is why uh, you need an abortion. Um, I see no reason to doubt uh, this this story. Uh, but also, we didn't really feel like kind of uh, uh, getting into the bottom of this was was super necessary to what we were trying to do in, in this book. So somebody even suggested, sure. why don't you call Judith Penny and interview her? And I just thought, you know, what? how would I even begin that phone call? <laughs> right? so, so we decided to just to just leave her uh, alone. Uh, but the one thing that I did begin to think about sort of looking at these details, especially of Ed Warren's life, is – you know, he did survive a shipwreck in World War II, which I imagine would be an extremely traumatic experience. And of course, for his generation, they didn't know as much about things like PTSD. He did seem mm -hmm. to have a real anger management problem uh, from people that right. we, we spoke to. I kind of wonder if he could not really have a regular job uh, because he was still having emotional issues as a result of, of PTSD. And so... Uh, and they were both artists. They were both trying to make a living as as, as artists. And so he ends up uh, making a living as, as sort of being a, a demonologist or a lecturer. Well, it's interesting, too, as as we look at the early, early parts of the Warrens career, it, you know, by their own by their own words, they were uh, painting haunted houses, uh, traveling the countryside, painting haunted houses, and then soliciting the owners of the houses with these paintings and asking for, can you tell me stories? We think your house is haunted. Do you have any horror stories you want to tell us? And that really speaks to, uh, you know, Ed's not actually having a sort of what we would consider quote unquote normal job, you know, the inability to sort of maybe maintain a, a, a nine to five or a sort of routine like that. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. 
Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Mm-hmm. So, probably, probably the weirdest thing that we found was a, a magazine article from 1972, and it had a photo of the Warrens, and it said the Warrens leading a witch ceremony. And behind them are a bunch of people in what I would call druidic robes, and they're walking around at night with, with a lantern. And we talked to uh, Jerry Sulfan, who was uh, uh, an investigator in the Amityville case, who knew the Warrens because he kept running into them uh, at different uh, kinds of cases. And he said, you know, I don't think that they were scientists, uh, but they were they were nice people. He was the only person who had met them who said they they were nice people. And I asked about this photograph and he said, oh, yeah, for a while, uh, uh, Ed Warren was a witch. And as I'm writing the, my, my book up, I said, you know, I just got to make sure that he really said that. It didn't say he was a snitch or something like this. Yeah. Uh, but, but he said, no, no, no. He was interested in witchcraft for a while. I think he identified as, as, as a witch. Uh, and in some of the Warren's earliest books, uh, Ed Warren is saying stuff like, you know, witchcraft is this very ancient religion that was wrongly persecuted because it causes you to develop psychic powers if you do these these, these rituals uh and so i'm i'm seeing a kind of different story of the warrens as being people who are artists who are really interested in magic and the paranormal of all kinds and then after the exorcist comes out they say this is it this is our hook we're yeah which is we are we are demon busters we're we're, we're catholic uh, warriors against the devil. Well, that that is exactly uh, the final question I want to ask about the Warrens, which is about this idea of them going from being open-minded, talking about Wicca as an ancient religion, and we actually owe our listeners a deep dive into Wicca, but that that's not right. It's a 1940s religion uh, developed by Gerald Gardner and others, and we'll, we'll get to that in another episode. But this idea of them turning into deep Catholic and almost giving people a back door to exorcism. You call them lay Catholics. How did they make that turn? How does that work? How do you petition your local diocese to allow you to do exorcisms in what seem like pretty sketchy scenarios? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know, they were not they were not sort of officially given a license to do anything that they were doing by the Catholic Church, right? And and there was a lot of tension there. A lot of times Ed Warren said things like, you know, these these priests don't even believe in the devil anymore, right? Basically that he's he's kind of more Catholic than than the Pope. But but one thing to understand historically is the Catholic Church in in Vatican II, which was from uh, 1962 to 1965, changed very suddenly. I mean, it was the biggest change that the church had gone through in in centuries, and there was a real conservative uh, backlash against that. There were these traditionalist Catholics who were really angry um, that the church had become far too progressive uh, uh, far too quickly. And so people like the Warrens had a ready-made market in these traditionalist Catholics. So by marketing themselves as we're the real Catholics. We know the reality of the devil. The church has forsaken us. They've become too modern. Uh, lots of people were receptive to that. And, and lots of people uh, were willing to side with the Warrens, even if they weren't being supported uh, by priests or bishops. And didn't uh, Ed Warren claim that he'd had access to the secret records and the true story, the, the exorcist case uh, of a Ronald or Roland Doe? 
Yes, in, in their book that came out in 1973, which is now fairly hard to find, uh, he says, because I'm a demonologist, I was given access to these special documents about the case that The Exorcist is, is based on. And in 1973, you know, when he said that, you kind of had to take his, his word for it. Now, of course, we know everything about that case. We know the name of the boy. We know what cities uh, he was in. We, we know everything. And so it's clear that the details that Ed Warren was giving out in that book uh, are made up, right? He did not actually have access to any secret documents the, the way that he claimed to. I should, I should hop in and say that, you know, we've talked a lot about the Warrens because they're a, a frequent subject on this show. And mm-hmm. they have been involved in cases that we've dug into quite deeply. But Malachi Martin, we have not talked about very much. And his book, right. Hoss- Hostage to the Devil, is extremely important, even if I don't think it's real. But I also knew <laughs> I, I knew Martin from his many appearances on Coast to Coast AM. And so I, you, when I read your book, I was shocked at some of the things that you guys uncovered or if not uncovered, at least brought to light uh, for me for the first time. So do, can we talk a little bit about Malachi Martin uh, and his, his strange career? Sure. So, so, so I mentioned Vatican II, which, which happened in, in Rome, and the Pope congregated some 2,800 bishops there, and this, this went on for years. And Malachi Martin was very close to a, a cardinal and was sort of a, a politico, right, and, and sort of could influence these major uh, declarations uh, from the church, and he seemed to really relish uh, uh, that job. He was very charming and well-spoken. He was a Jesuit, uh, so highly educated, could could read and teach multiple languages, had gone on archaeological digs and, and, and so forth. But uh, what seems to have happened is that there was a reporter who came to cover Vatican II, and Martin uh, had an affair with his wife. Uh, and Martin may have done this with a lot of wives, but this was kind of the final uh, uh, straw um, and, you know, uh, love letters that he had written to this man's wife were intercepted and so forth. Uh, and so there was an arrangement where he was released of his vows of uh, uh, poverty and obedience, not his vow of chastity, however, right? and, and ends up basically having to leave uh, the Vatican and ends up in, in New York, where he had made some friends um, in the publishing industry because he had already written several uh, uh, books. So he goes from being this this uh, uh, you know priest who is hobnobbing with all these international figures to living in New York and he's driving a taxi or he's working at a donut shop or he's just kind of trying to make ends meet. Uh, we found all these letters from him where he's he's saying I'm running out of money, right? Please please help me. Well then the exorcist comes out and he sees this opportunity of wait a second I'm I'm a Catholic priest, uh, and so he says my stories about exorcism are true, right? All of this stuff really happened. And uh, The Exorcist is, is, is frankly, it's, it's kind of namby-pamby. The real thing is much scarier and much more uh, horrible than anything in that book. So he writes this book claiming that these are all uh, 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 true stories, and it becomes a very influential book. Um, however, uh, lots of Catholic theologians and also William Peter Blatty immediately called BS uh, on this book. They said this isn't consistent with Catholic uh, theology or Catholic ideas about how exorcism works. In fact, he doesn't really seem to have any idea what, what he's talking about. This seems to be basically a horror novel where everything is, is made up. 
but sometimes there's an advantage just making stuff up. Malachi Martin's interpretation of exorcism was much more streamlined and easy to understand because it hadn't evolved, you know, through through the Middle Ages. It hadn't tried to deal with these theological problems like can a demon take away your free will and so forth. And he says in that book, look, exorcism has six phases to it and so forth. And uh, now we see this literature in, in uh, horror movies all the time. Um, so movies like um, Deliver Us From Evil, there's these six phases, right? Uh, so even though he was making it up, it now has, has really shaped uh, the kind of mythology of exorcism, especially in, in things like horror movies. Well, he sounds like a, a bit of a Rasputin type with a lot of his exploits. But uh, you talked a lot about the elements of hostage to the devil that appear to be wildly fictional. Can you tell us a little bit about how that has affected Catholic thought on exorcisms? Sure. Yeah, he was compared to Rasputin by at least one person. He was, by all there accounts, you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, incredibly uh, charming. And even if you if you go find these old Coast to Coast AM interviews, you know, if, if you don't have your guard up, you're going, I like this guy. He sounds nice. <laughs> he, he sounds affable for sure. Yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's this kind of Irish uh, uh, charm, something that Lorraine Warren mm. also described as, as, as having uh, uh, Irish charm. Uh, but yeah, he, he makes up these, these six stages of exorcism, which had never been part of, of uh, exorcism uh, literature before. And then he coins this term uh, perfectly possessed. So he says some people... Uh, want to be possessed by demons. They basically ask for it. And if that happens, uh, there's nothing you can do to get the demon out. The, an exorcism won't work. Holy water won't do anything to them. And the person is basically just a living demon. Uh, this is very problematic uh, because he's basically recreated this medieval category of the witch, right? That, that some human mm -hmm. beings are, are not really uh, uh, human like us. They're they're sort of allied with with the devil, and this gets political real quick. So he's explaining this to Art Bell on Coast to Coast AM, and Art Bell asks, uh, and uh, and Father Martin is uh, Bill Clinton perfectly possessed, and he just says, oh oh no comment, Art, right? <laughs> uh, and, and so it leads to kind of a really nasty kind of uh, uh, conservative political view, and I, I think in history whenever. Uh, people begin saying some some people aren't really people. Some people are really demons. Uh, nothing good ever comes out of that. I I enjoyed his Art Bell in, in discussions, but you know like, when I read everything that you guys had uncovered, I was like, oh wow, they didn't talk about any of this on Art Bell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. But I, the, the again, let me recommend the book the exorcist effect uh again the the premise of the book is about how fiction can influence the way people perceive the reality which in turn affects how people report on their own experiences with the paranormal which in turn affects future fiction so it's this feedback loop and i know we've sort of run out of time here there's a brilliant chapter on the satanic panic uh, talking about how the the sort of real world impacts of these supernatural ideas is not just in how we entertain ourselves in the dark of a theater. It actually has really profound impacts on real people's lives who die or go to jail or have any number of horrible things happen to them during a period we call the satanic panic. And I was pleased, even though we don't have time to dive into it very deeply, I was pleased that you did point out that Others have uh, suggested that this is not even over. 
that it's still going on. That the satanic panic didn't mm. end in the 80s or the 90s. Uh, that is still happening now. And I would say your numerous ref- uh, references to QAnon uh, and other sort of modern mm. conspiracies uh, support this idea that uh, that these 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 interplays are, are not done with us yet. Uh, do you want to comment sure. at all on that? Eric read all of the Q drops to no! research this, this book. Are you okay? Do you need help? Uh, I, all, right, like... <laughs> all, all of the Q drops is a bit of a, a bit of a stretch, but I did happen to find a an archived website of Q drops, and I did get pretty deep in there. Although to be fair, I was scanning for movie references because one of the things that we found was that Q, so much of the QAnon. Uh, language is lifted directly from fiction. Uh, the the um, what is it? The Adrenochrome is it's, it's Hunter S. Thompson. That it it doesn't exist. Like it or it doesn't exist in the way that in the way that they describe. I did some you know I did some digging and found that Adrenochrome is a real substance that one can get, but it's readily available. You can like buy it from a lab for relatively cheap for certain experiments. And I read a uh, I read an account of someone who had taken it recreationally to see if it would, you know, have the effect that it had in the in uh, in Thompson's book. And he was like, yeah, it's nothing. Yeah. Uh, or not to mention just that they also have the uh, uh, what is their um, where we go one we go all. Yeah. That is their that is that's that's from a uh, um, from White Squall. Oh wow. Wow. Yeah, I think it's I'm pretty sure it's it's like the rallying cry of White Squall. So you can kind of see, you know, that's a little bit more of a superficial. Oh, uh, man, that's uh, like uh, that's like finding out that uh, when you Crowley said, uh, let do without will be the whole of the law, that he was quoting Gargantua and Pantagruel. Like he's he's like, (laughs) it's like, what? (laughs) I thought it was some badass evil shit. It's like no, it's just some stuff from a novel. What? Exactly right, and it's sort of you know, even though that's kind of a, a kind of a silly sort of surface example, uh, you know, the 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 core of a lot of QAnon belief does kind of dovetail into the or, you know into the satanic panic. I mean, what was their big major conspiracy? The Comet Pizza that there are satanic pedophiles that operate under a pizzeria in in DC, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's. That's Rosemary's baby. It's the group of people that you think are just normal, regular people, but they're doing something very heinous in the in the behind closed doors. And it's horrible Satan worship. And we know it. and We can see it. Well, I think that's all we have time for tonight. Uh, again, the book is called The Exorcist Effect. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Terrific yeah. read. Uh, Highly recommend it. We really could have gone on for another hour, I think, talking about the amazing details yes. in this book. It's really good. I can't overstate this enough. It's really full of fascinating, sometimes scary, sometimes sad details. But I learned a lot, which is awesome. I always love it when I read a book mm-hmm. about a topic I think I know and discover stuff I didn't know. New which info. Is for ideal. Sure. But that brings us to our final question. Uh, Eric, it's your first time here. We've had Joe on several times, and Joe has said that his favorite monster is Mothman. I don't know if that's still true, but uh, Eric, what's your favorite monster? Well, it depends. Are we talking about like cryptids, or are we it's talking whatever about you want it to movie. be? Whatever you anything and everything. Yes, <laughs> well, uh, usually I get you know. Usually I kind of say I like the Ghoulies. Wow, that's <laughs> never been brought up before on the show. That, that is a new one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So, so for people who may not have been around in the 80s VHS era, what, what is The Ghoulies? What? Oh, the Ghoulies is a goofy sort of uh, knockoff of Gremlins, kind of. Uh, silly little, uh, it's all practical effects because back in the day there were not radars and it was better. But uh, uh, just, you know, these little silly dummies. And the big, the famous, uh, the famous shot is the, the ghoulie coming out of the toilet. Yes, exactly. He's on the cover coming out of the toilet. And I've always enjoyed a dose of goofy in camp with my horror. So I tend to, I tend to gravitate towards those. Ghoulies. They'll get you in the end. Um, if I was to say my favorite cryptid, oh, I, what is his name? The guy from Johnstown that's just sad because he's really ugly. There's, there's you mean no you mean the real life person who just walks down the street? No, 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 no. There's a cryptid that is from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and uh, he's got a he's got a really silly name. I want to say like Squelch or Squanch or something like that. And his lore is that he's wailing and very sad because he's very very ugly. Squonk, there it is, squonk. It's the squonk, okay, the squonk. Okay, I've heard of the squonk. I've never heard of Squonkapalooza, which is apparently an all-age. They've got an event for this. Uh, oh. Yeah, it sounds like a festival. They've got a festival. They've got a festival. Well, they've really made it. That's awesome. That's I like squonk because he's just, you know, kind of sad. Aww. He's sad because he's hideous. Wow. Yeah, Aww. <laughs> He looks like a sort of snub-nosed version of Dobby, the house elf. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Neat. Okay. That's a new one for us. <laughs> I've heard of the squawk before. Yeah. I didn't realize there was an event for it. That's really cool. Um, all right. Well, awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. That's <laughs> so. All right. Well, guys, I really appreciate you taking the time, uh, not only to talk yeah, with us, but also you. to put this book together. <laughs> nice. Yeah. What so, a hard work. <laughs> for real. <laughs> great book thank you so much monster talk you've been listening to monster talk the science show about monsters i'm blake smith and i'm karen stolzner you just heard part two of our interview with authors joe laycock and eric harrelson about their new book the exorcist effect as a reminder on december 15th there will be a signing of this book at the glass coffin boutique that's 3009 north interstate highway 35 austin texas that'll be in the show notes and on December 17th, there will be a signing at Curio Arcanum, and that's at 5924 South Congress Avenue, Unit 23, Austin, Texas. Again, links to, again, all that detail will be in the show notes as well. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, we thank you for making this show a part of your listening life.
This has been a Monster House presentation.